Hey everybody in Serial Killer Country. My name is Brittany Ransom. And my name is Brian Joyner. And this is When Killers Get Caught, a podcast devoted to deep dives into the lives and psyches of the killers we love to learn about. Each week, Brian and I find a true crime story that resonated with us. Then I discuss one well-known or lesser-known killer and go deep into their childhood, lives, methodology, and most importantly, how they got caught. And then we get a little spooky and we'll learn something about cryptids or the supernatural. And just before we begin, just to let you know, our Patreon is live. There are four tiers from 5 to $50 that offer lots of things like being able to listen to us report the podcast or playing games with us on Twitch or just getting a free 30-minute podcast about conspiracies. Yes, it's all fun and games over on Patreon. So. It is fun and games <laughs> on Patreon. You can support us by going to patreon.com slash caught, and you are always open to check out our merch at www.whenkillersgetcaught.com and I am slowly merging it over to the Facebook page which is also searching when killers get caught and the podcast is now available to listen to on Facebook look you're getting us everywhere yeah so listen (laughs) if you prefer to listen to on Facebook or look at things on Facebook absolutely they will all be there that happened this week uh that I was able to guess Facebook's doing some new changes. Yeah. That's pretty awesome though. Next it'll be freaking Twitter. <laughs> that'd be great. That would be awesome if everything was all integrated. But so before I start into this week in true crime amount, what I want to talk about, I want everyone listening to just hear me out. Don't get mad when I say the name of this. Because I want to talk about missing white women syndrome. This is specifically in the news right now because of the Gabby Petito case. And what missing white women syndrome is, is the American media's propensity to specifically cover with just like a ferocious ferocity. Like the mainstream media in this country absolutely loves to talk about missing white women. And it's to the detriment of missing women of color. There are a disproportionate number of teenage black girls who are being kidnapped across this country and they are virtually never reported. There are a disproportionate number of indigenous women across North America that have not been reported. And it's been such a big deal in Canada that they are now launching like investigations into the coverage and the police, whether they have been doing the right thing. There is an entire highway in Canada that they refer to as the highway of tears because there have been so many indigenous women who have gone missing in that, in this area. And it crosses roughly 75% of the the continent or sorry, that country on our continent. And this is really important because like I said, so many of the people who need to be reported are not being reported. Uh, just this week alone, it wasn't until Jelani Day, uh, his mom spoke on TV about the fact that she had been trying to get coverage of him missing, put on mainstream news since he went missing on August 24th. This week, he was he was found technically September 4th. His body was September found, right? 9th. Yes. Yeah. And a river in Illinois. But they didn't like, I guess there was no fire behind the Emmy until everyone publicly was like, where is he? You found a body. Do the 
friggin' coroner yeah, report. Yeah, they're just like, oh yeah, we found a body, blah blah blah. That's right. About and it. so of course, once they do it, like days after this is everywhere on Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, all of a sudden we have a positive ID, mm-hmm. and it's been three, almost three weeks since they found the body. Uh, I mean, there are situations like. Uh, Akia Eggleston, she was eight months pregnant when she disappeared four years ago in Baltimore. There's a young girl named Keisha Unique Jacobs. She's been missing since 2016. She'd be 26 years old now. There are a host of families who are asking just for similar coverage of the people who they love. And... I have been getting messages in my inbox on TikTok for an ext- a very long time with people asking me to cover missing cases. And so I asked on Facebook, I asked on YouTube, and I asked on TikTok, do you want me to cover these cases? And I got to be really honest with you. I don't know if people are prepared for this, but I have absolutely no intention right now of covering whatever the new hot story about the missing white women is because I feel like there's already enough attention. You got your CNN and every other major news source doing this. So I am going to start covering missing people every Monday. I'm going to try and do more than my normal videos Mm -hmm. so I can get a bunch of them up because literally there are at least 50 different people in my inbox at any given time requesting. Can you talk about my friend? Can you talk about my cousin? Can you talk about my sister? Like, there's so many. And I, I got to tell you, I'm going to say that I'm going to start specifically discussing women of color and indigenous women first. Because I feel like there is a gap in oh, absolutely. the reporting. Absolutely. And this is not to say that anybody's missing relative is less important. But until there is fair coverage, those of us who are, are talking about things in the media on alternate forms of media have to cover that gap. Mm-hmm. So I hope I didn't make anybody too mad. People get real angry when you start saying the words white and women. Oh no. I on mean, the internet. And but, you know, that's what we're here for anyway. Like you, you and me, that's what we do this podcast for. We, we cover that gap of people. It really is true. I have been doing a seminar this past week on marketing. And one of the people in my seminar hit me up. Um, he's from the 30 minute podcast. Uh, he actually wanted to know if we wanted to be on his podcast and talk to him. Oh, oh so maybe we might be on another person's podcast. But <laughs> he specifically said that he was watching a masterclass and they were discussing the lack of people of color who specifically discuss true crime. And I wasn't aware when we made this podcast that there was a deficit in this. We've gotten a couple emails that were like, yay, you guys are woke. We really appreciate it. Mm. But like I said to you the other night when we, I called you to tell you about that. I was like, I don't know how to be any other way. Like, yeah. we're, we're black people. We're going to talk about black people stuff. That's what happens. <laughs> Get two black people in the room with microphones. Come on. That's what, <laughs> what we're going to do. So I, I just, I feel like it's something that people need to be aware of and think about. That the media that we are consuming is being curated by certain people. Mm-hmm. And those certain people care the most, apparently, about Young white women between like the age of like 16 and like 25. They seem to be the ones that get the most attention. And that's unfortunate because I'm sure there's an elderly white woman who's gone missing who could probably use the the, the media, the, the media yeah. attention, yeah, you know? Absolutely. 
But we don't we don't care about elderly people in this country. But that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> oh my god, we're not going there today. <laughs> but I'm going to turn it over to you, Brian. What is your story this week? Oh my god. <laughs> well, thank you for all the information. So, speaking of white people, is this another white? Uh, this is a missing white person? No, 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 no. Oh, okay. So this is headlined as teenagers um, are charged with planning to attack a PA school. Um, was this the two boys who look like they're about 10 years old? No, no, oh, no. Oh, okay, because they were, that was a mess. So this is a, a four teenagers. They're trying, they, they want to, I guess, attack a school, their high school. Okay. And uh, Remembrance of the Columbine. Oh, Jesus. Which will be turning 25 years old when they were planning the attack. That's so, ridiculous. Oh, my God. So they planned this attack for uh, 2024. Where was this happening in Pennsylvania? Uh, Scranton, PA. Oh, gee. Why is it always Scranton? What is going on in Scranton? No fucking idea. Scranton's boring sometimes. Maybe that's it. The only thing they got there is the office. And, you know, it's just... It wasn't even filmed there, though. I know. They literally filmed (laughs) one, like... You got the Electric City, okay? They got the Electric City sign and everything. Because when I did a story... I did a story about this woman who was taking pictures with dead bodies. She was a a mortician. Mm -hmm. And it was from that region... And people were upset. She just thought it was cool. So she was taking pictures of families without their permission. But yeah. so these kids. So it, it was, te- it's four kids. Uh, two of them were 15 year olds. Uh-huh. Uh, They're being charged as adults. Uh, the other two were being charged with just juvenile um, charges. But yeah, it's a, uh, they were trying to attack Dunmore, Dunmore High School. Okay. In Scranton. I'm guessing that must be their school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This it, is, and uh, it says that one of the girls' mothers said that the told the police that her daughter was obsessed with Columbine. Ah, uh, and like as a parent, see, I can't say anything <laughs> about that because I was like twelve years old reading about serial killers. Okay, yeah, but. What kind of obsession are we talking about? Like, are you are you are you trying to like? I just wanted to know everything about them. Yeah, that's the that's when this started. This that is now what we have started when I was like 12, 13 years old. Yeah, no, I mean same thing with me and paranormal, but like, I also was into the paranormal too. I started but, reading ghost stuff. But like, come on, like if that's the only thing you're obsessed with, Columbine and the shooting and stuff like that. Well, I guess the question is like, how do you know that your kid is just like? casually interested in something because you know like little kids get into like dinosaurs they know everything about every dinosaur right Mm -hmm. how do you know that your kid's like into murder like that or your kid is thinking about doing a murder like i don't know what the they start they start mentioning it a lot i mean like okay for example how did they know that this was happening what did they find um so what they found was hold on (laughs) I don't know how they found. I think they found things they were making so they could do this. Oh no! So I I, I read they they found a Molotov cocktail. They they found a bonus for a bomb. Oh, they were trying to do it bigger than Columbine they, they because were, Columbine did not have explosives. Yeah, they they uh, had plans written down for making bombs Absolutely. and stuff like that. See, and then I'm gonna also tell you that when I was 14, I read the Anarchist Cookbook. Yeah, a lot of people because read I was that. like, why not? And it was in my high school. My my librarian didn't believe in banning books. She didn't believe that anything was 
bad to know. Mm-hmm. But like now I feel like I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah, so I'm guessing they, they found this stuff in this one in one of the girls' rooms. Okay. Or in, in her home or wherever. Well, thank goodness for a snooping mama. I know, right? Hey. But, oh, goodness gracious. They said they didn't believe there's, like, an immediate threat right now since... When's the anniversary? Is it in 2024, but... Oh, Jesus. They were planning... Yeah, 2024. That's when they planned to attack. So, oh, Lord. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I can understand why the cops were like, well, they're just really stockpiling stuff for three years from now. Wait a second. Two of them wouldn't have even been in high school anymore. They still, don't they? They still teach this kind of stuff in school where they learn about this kind of stuff. And no, I just mean that, like, if two of them were junior, uh, sophomores, three years from now, oh, they would be eight. out of high school, mm. still about to do this attack and the other two would have been seniors or maybe they had planned to get held back a year seems so like they could a weird do this. plan i know i know because everybody i don't know why why would you uh. this is weird <laughs> this yeah. is weird and stupid i guess they had a, i'm kind of mad about it yeah i guess they had a list of targets that they you know they wanted people to they they what if those target? people aren't even there anymore? What if the teacher you hate gets transferred? If one of them or was the principal. To, yeah, what if the principal decides to move to Wisconsin? I don't know. Now you can't kill him. Your revenge plot foiled. I just, like, <laughs> like I read it, and like, I read oh. the headline, and I was like, oh, no. <laughs> no. Kids are really impulsive, so this is very intriguing. Yeah. Because I would understand if they were like, we're going to kill principal skinner next week <laughs> it's the only one i could think of off the top of my head building <laughs> but to building. say we're gonna kill principal skinner four years from now all right get ready yeah get ready you don't skinner. even they go see him in the hall you don't even know son <laughs> oh my god you don't know what we got prepared for you just wait oh jesus you better hope it's not a leap year <laughs> <laughs> I'm done. Okay. That's, that's, that's what I got. Kids kids being kids and sometimes kids are scary and think of scary things. Kids are absolutely scary. But. Yeah. Goodness gracious. This week I'm bringing it back to Australia. We are discussing the first woman to get a life sentence without parole. Mm. She only killed one person, her partner, John Charles Thomas Price. But what she did was so barbaric and disgusting that the government felt compelled to put her in prison for life when the average time a murderer spends is about 25 years in Australia. You and I were both alive when this happened. Okay. We were in middle school. And you may recall that it was global news that Catherine Knight skinned her boyfriend and tried to serve him as a dish to his children. Today will probably frustrate you, but not for the normal reasons. Because by the end of this, what I think I'm going to tell you is that misogyny and the confining nature of masculinity are why she was able to get away with abusing every man she ever dated. And had these men had felt the ability to report her, mm-hmm. perhaps somebody's life could have been saved. Oh, huh. okay. I feel frustrated already. Let's go. 
And so let's talk about who she was before she became the cannibal killer of Aberdeen. So Catherine Mary Knight was born October 24th, 1955 to parents who'd gotten themselves into a pretty big scandal. Her mother, Barbara, was married to a man named Jack Ruffin in Hunter's Valley in Aberdeen. It's spelled R-O-U-G-A-N. And I want to say Rogan so bad, but it's wrong. Uh, It was in Hunter's Valley in Aberdeen, Australia. She was having an affair with a man named Ken Knight. And both Ken and Jack worked for the same slaughterhouse. Oh, isn't that lovely? In fact, Ken was a pretty good guy, except for the whole stealing your girl situation Mm. that went down. Boyfriend number two. They all hung out together. Jack and Barbara, along with all the other people. Slaughterhouses in the 1950s in this area were pretty common. It was major unskilled, well, I wouldn't say unskilled labor jobs, but non-education-based jobs. Mm -hmm. What do you call those? I don't know. When people learn trade. There you go. Trade. So what do you mean not education-based? So you don't go to college to get this job. Yeah, but you go to But you do still need to learn like how to do it. Okay, you go to trade school. Right. So right. So these are trade-based jobs where mining and pretty much manufacturing and working in slaughterhouses. Pretty common back then. But they met in the bar and Ken flirted with her in front of her very drunk husband, but he was too drunk to realize. Hmm. Now, Barbara and Jack were high school sweethearts, and they had four kids, two teenage boys and two younger children. And she felt trapped in a marriage that she entered way too early. She never even considered divorce because it was unheard of back then. But an affair, no problem. (laughs) People were always having affairs in Aberdeen, and Cam was there, and he liked her. So one night when they were all drinking, Jack got taken back home because he was wasted. So Barbara went home with Ken instead, and then they ignored each other in public. Just played it off. Yep. Made sure that they never interacted again in public. But one day she was home and Jack saw a bruise on her thigh that he thought looked like a handprint. And he beat the ever loving crap out of Barbara and threw her out of the house and all of her stuff with her. Oh, you didn't ask her where it came from. You just, you just assumed. And, uh. within, the, within a day, the entire town knew. Now, mind you, the town had about 1,500 citizens. And so she moved into Jack's very tiny apartment that he got from the job. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was it was bad. Bad enough that like her teen boys would spit at her in the street if they oh, saw her. Damn. They sided with their dad wholeheartedly. The two youngest kids were sent to go live with an aunt in Sydney, roughly 200 miles away. Mm-hmm. And so Ken and Barbara left and they went to a city called Marie. He got a job at a slaughterhouse there. Barbara got her divorce, and she also lost her friends and her family and her kids. I mean, that's what happens when you cheat. One week after the divorce was approved, she got married to Ken. She had two boys within the same year, which means those back-to-back pregnancies. Those back-to-back. Oh, goodness. And she pretty much walked from a man who didn't really love her into the arms of a man who didn't really love her, but was also a hardcore alcoholic. Oh, so you downgraded it. She downgraded. Barbara was aware that cheating again meant that she'd lose her children, so she was just going to try and stick it out for Ken. But Ken was kind of awful to her specifically. He was very demanding sexually, and if she would deny him, he'd attempt to beat her into submission. And when that stopped working, he would pretty much chase her around the house and rape her. Bruh. Sometimes 10 times a day. 
also when Barbara found out that she was pregnant and it was twin girls, she was so happy. Now she had like some allies in the house. Yeah. So uh, Catherine and her sister Joy were born in Tenerfield, New South Wales. Joy was a tomboy who very quickly hung out with the boys in the family. So Catherine ended up being her mother's only friend. Mm. She was a pretty normal kid in the midst of a toxic family. Uh, Cam was very strict, hyper conservative. The kids were frequently whipped for any bad behavior. Uh, but Catherine learned very quickly and she was never whooped for the same thing twice. She actually learned very early how to deal with her dad's intensity. And she began to idolize him almost. She treated him like a god. Which hurt Barbara's feelings because she was like, dang it, we were supposed to be besties <laughs> and now you're on his side. Kids always flock to the dad for some reason. I don't know why. Well, then Jack died in 1959. Catherine was four years old. So ex-husband dies mm-hmm. and the two older boys move in with Barbara and Ken. Oh, okay. They very quickly adapt to Ken's intensity and the loathing of their mother. They already viewed her as a whore, and they also viewed all women in this way. Uh, they pushed their luck a little bit too many times in town, though, and they got blacklisted from pretty much every town event for being creeps. They saw Joy as one of the boys, which left Catherine to be sexually groomed by her brothers from roughly the age of four to 14. Catherine thought that this was just the way men are because her mother had been telling her stories about being raped by her father since she could remember. Oh, my God. Like, at one point, Catherine asked her mother, what do you say if you don't want to do those things? Say fucking no. Well, her mom responded, just let them do what they want with you. It's easier that way. You say no and you kick them in the balls. They try to do anything else. There you go. Listen to Brian. Yes. Before Catherine was even a teenager herself, all four of her brothers were molesting her she started trying to find ways to not be in the house and she had an uncle named oscar oscar was a famous horseman who had a farm where he took care of his rescues and champion horses Catherine loved it there she loved learning from him she would rescue any injured animal she could find and bring it home this was the one thing that she was willing to fight her father on she didn't care that she made him mad she was going to save this bird (laughs) she found on the side of the road If she found a bigger injured animal, she took it to Oscar and he would take it to a vet or she would bring him to where it was. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, Oscar had his own demons and he took his life when Catherine was 14 years old. It was just a bit too much for Catherine to take and she was grieving really hard. It just sounds like like the only guy that was... Yeah, so far, the only one who was nice to her is Uncle Oscar. Yeah, decent guy in her life. Great, okay. Well, right after he dies... One of her brothers comes into the room to, you know, like, oh, let's hang out so he can, like, touch her, you know, in that subtle way. And she punched him so hard that she nearly broke his jaw and said, if you ever touch me again, I will castrate you. Oh, yes. (laughs) Now, the older boys heard about this and they were like, let's go see how Catherine's doing. And Catherine was pretty sad, but she seemed pretty normal. Mm. So they just assumed that, like, okay, maybe our younger brother, like, pushed things too far, and that's why she hit him. They all learned their lesson, too. One had a black eye for a month. The other got stabbed. The boys told their parents it was just from fighting at school. It's not because we were trying to touch her sister, and she fucked us up. No. Mm. I love it. Thank you. They never told. 
because that mean they would have to tell on themselves. And they didn't doubt Catherine when she said she'd castrate them because she'd learned how to do it on <laughs> Uncle Oscar's farm. I love it so much. <laughs> so on one hand, things are going pretty good for Catherine. She just learned that if you beat the shit out of a man, he won't put his hands on you anymore. Yeah, basically. However, after Uncle Oscar died, the family realized that the town of Maury was only putting up with them because Oscar was a celebrity and they didn't really like the very sinful Barbara and they mm. definitely didn't like her sinful teenage boys who kept touching girls in town. Mm. So when Catherine was 15, they moved back to Aberdeen. She entered Musselbrook High School in 1969. She was the new girl. And within weeks, within the first week, kids knew that they shouldn't bother her. She was this like sweet, cute redhead, um, pretty tall, She'd smile and laugh with you until you made her mad. And then she'd just rip into somebody, just verbally disrespectful. And by chance, if you put your hands on her at all, she would get you back. Like one day on the school bus, a girl tripped her. And the next day, Catherine cut off her entire ponytail. Oh, a boy on the bus talked about her breasts or lack of thereof. And when she walked by him, she smashed his face into the bus seat in front of him. She was waging war on these bus rides. And then at school, the, the kids would report her and the teachers were like, this doesn't make sense. Like she's they're saying that they like she beat him up, but she's sitting here just looking chill. <laughs> and then essentially in these little meetings, the bullies would admit that they had provoked her. And even though her retaliations went from zero to 100, mm -hmm. the staff pretty much was like, well, you don't want your teeth knocked out. Leave her alone. It, I mean, yeah. Pretty much everybody in the school took that position. Her peers respected her. The younger kids feared her. It was a good time. Mm -hmm. Catherine kept a knife in the fold of her skirt at her waist. It was so she could grab it if she needed it, but it was close enough to her body that no male teacher, who were the predominant gender of the teachers at the school, would mm. ever touch her to look for it. And she stabbed a boy at school one day. They couldn't find the knife, so they couldn't prove that it had been done. So they sent home a little behavior letter. This happened a lot. Now, Ken would get those letters, and he would say, did the boy deserve it? And Catherine would say, yes. As far as Ken was concerned, his daughter was defending her honor from these fresh boys in town. Which is kind of funny because he never made the connection that his own sons got rocked mm. by Catherine as well. This kind of left Catherine to just, you know, get her education and not be bothered. Since she was a farm kid, nobody really expected her to do well in school, but she did all right. She was on the path to having a pretty good life. And then her favorite teacher gave her a failing grade. She sat through his whole class, just stony silent. And then after the bell rang and the other kids left, he walked over to her and he was just like, what's wrong? And she threw the paper at him. And began screaming him. And then she grabbed the knife. Oh no. Out of her waistband and stabbed her teacher. Mm. She probably would have killed him. If he hadn't punched her. And it was the kind of punch. That knocks you on your ass. Mm -hmm. And first there was a moment of silence. And then Catherine just began. Wailing. Just screaming sobbing. Now he was a good teacher. And he he didn't mean to punch her like a grown man but he was in fight or flight mode so he goes over to her and he leans over her and he's like Catherine are you okay and at that moment 
other students arrive uh, to a crying girl and there's blood everywhere. It's not hers. It's mine. <laughs> well, her teacher was suspended. Catherine played the victim. The school ended up deciding to do an, an investigation and it was all people who had never met Catherine before. And at the end of the investigation, they were just like, you've been letting this kid just run around and rule your school. She is the problem here. They reinstated her teacher with all his back pay. They allowed her to school to go back to school. If she agreed, no more fighting, apologize to your teacher and you're on probation. Mm -hmm. If you get into another like fight or stab somebody else, you're out. She finished the school year avoiding that teacher. And then she never went to school after that ever again. What the hell? What was the point then? Okay. So what she did the next next work day, she decides she wants to go to the Aberdeen Slaughterhouse with her dad. She wanted to be like her dad anyway, so she's just like, why not do it a couple years sooner? Hmm. The shift manager saw this skinny little 15-year-old and immediately went, no, this is not work for you. She kept her cool, knowing that her dad was at work, and she ended up leaving and going to a fabric factory in town and getting a job there. She was already really good at making her own clothing. And so when the job was to cut cloth to size, which you really don't want to mess up on because nobody wants one pant leg longer than the other. Right. Uh, her employers are pretty happy with her work. She was making enough money. She started, she moved out of her parents' house. Now she found the women at the factory boring. So she would go hang out at the bar with the slaughterhouse employees after work. And that shift manager who told her no was completely taken aback to see Catherine in the bar making jokes and threatening to fight grown men in the bar. <laughs> now, she didn't drink because I, I think she grew up watching her father be very drunk. Right, right. Uh, they were also, all of the men, very uh, kind of freaked out by how sexually forward she was. And she kind of made her way through the single men at the slaughterhouse. Like she was so sexually forward that in some ways it was off-putting from the men she was trying to date. Ah, I see. Then in 1971, when she was 16, she applies for her dream job again. And they accept her, giving her pretty much the crappiest job in the place. Cutting up meat for dog food. It's generally the scraps from all the other major cuts. That's not too bad. Uh, which she was too good for dog food. Uh, the, she was too skilled for it. Mm, okay. She had watched her dad and her dad is one of the pretty much best people at this place. So within weeks, her bosses started testing her and giving her more complex jobs. Once she like proved that she mastered that, they moved her to another station over only a few months. She met almost everybody in the factory and they were all in a rude awakening. If you thought you could treat Catherine Knight, like she was a stupid little girl. <laughs> If a man in the line raised his voice at her, she would look at him and say, we can always go settle this with our fucking knives. Oh my God. She was ready to <laughs> hurt oh them. God. Nobody ever took her up on an offer, though. Mm. She eventually did relax enough to stop threatening her coworkers, and she would have fun with them, cutting meat up, making jokes. She was moved to deboning in 1972, which is one of the most complex jobs in the slaughterhouse, and I had to Google why. Deboning is the process where you skin, remove the excess fat, remove the bone, and any blemishes to the meat. Your job is to do all of that while trying to preserve as much meat as possible. Mm. Uh, this was where her father worked, and he had earned a reputation of being one of the best people there. She was pretty hype. She was like, 
Nice. I get to work with my dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ken was a little uh, salty. He had been the top for like decades because he did the job before they'd moved to Maureen. Right. And now his own kid was kind of vying for his spot. <laughs> he ne- They never spoke about it, though. It was just it was a silent like. Mm. <laughs> it was silent rivalry. But Catherine kind of brought that out of every guy when she worked next to them. They, the men couldn't take the hit to their ego that a 16-year-old was better at them. So everyone was working their hardest to try and beat her. And if she was better than them, then they were just trying to, like, not be ashamed mm-hmm. and reach her level. So at least they were on the same level. Because of all this competition now in the slaughterhouse, the owners are hyped. So much more meat's getting cut. And it's all so much better. Mm-hmm. So they decided they wanted to show Catherine appreciation, but they did not want to give her a raise. So exactly one year from her start date, she was gifted a set of personalized knives and a custom leather bag to carry them in. She took them to work every day at home. She sharpened and displayed them around the house. They were her most prized possession. I, th- I think that's even better than a raise. Actually, <laughs> I, I want right a, a little bag that says Catherine. Look, I want my own personal set of life that are nice and sharp and oh, good. yes. Anyway, <laughs> uh, the owners didn't actually even need to ask Catherine to show it off. She did it on her own, and on her days off and lunch breaks, she'd come and hang out with her friends from different departments. Mm. Her favorite place to hang out was the pig slaughtering department. Now, unlike the cows who were killed with one blow because they're so slow, you just hit them, it's done, it's over with. Pigs were smaller and kind of wily and it took more to kill them. Apparently, when you worked at the slaughterhouse, the sound of dying hogs was heard all over the building when the slaughtering moment happened. Lovely. Catherine thought the job was fascinating. There was an old man who worked there who was kind of a grump and the only person he liked was Catherine. Some people kind of made jokes that it was like a lecherous relationship, but it seemed to just be a genuine friendship between like a grandpa (laughs) and a teen girl. She just wanted to know more about killing pigs. And so he was so happy to have the company on her lunch breaks that he would do stuff he wasn't supposed to, like killing the pigs in front of her. Or he would start killing them in worse ways. Because it made her happy. Oh. Or one time he skinned a pig while it was alive. No. Yep. And that only made Catherine really interested in doing it herself. So he let her slaughter the pigs. And sometimes she chased them around and like stabbed at them just to mess with them. Oh my God. Poor pigs. So Catherine had gone in just like three years. From a little girl who couldn't let a squirrel die on the side of the road to a full-blown animal torturer. Which, as we know, is one of the signs. Yes. Just had to be pigs. Now, this was it wasn't like this wasn't known mm. around the facility. And you'd think that men knowing she was into that sort of thing would turn them off. But nope. She was very consistently asked out. She'd go from work to the bar. And then she'd flirt the night away. By 1972... She was stocky, about six feet tall, 17. And she ended up making friends with a man named David Kellett. He was 22. Mm. One night out while they were drinking, another man insulted David. And David kind of stepped down. He was like, I don't want to fight. Catherine was like, I do. And she (laughs) knocked the guy out. Lovely. And she swung on him until 
Her hands were bloody and his teeth were all over the floor. David and other co-workers had to pull him off of the man. Now, everybody else in the bar was like, eh, typical bar fight. But the bartender was like, she's not drunk. And I know she's not drunk because I've been sending her lemonades masqueraded as another drink the whole night. Oh. So the bartender was like, this is just Catherine being Catherine and you need to leave. <laughs> the only other place that you could go drink in the entire city was a hotel that was literally across the street. So they went there. David was in awe of her. He was just like, I've never had anybody protect me. And the two began dating. And David got to see what it was like to date someone like Catherine. She made wonderful home-cooked meals. She fixed and improved his clothes. They had a stellar sex life that people at the slaughterhouse, when the guys talked, could not believe. Apparently, she had the similar sexual appetite as her father. And David was happy about that. So inevitably, she takes him to meet her parents. Now, at this point in time, Ken is heading towards retirement. The family had moved outside of Aberdeen to a small farmhouse. It wasn't to make money, though. Most of the property had been parceled out by the bank to pay for a previous owner that had gone bankrupt. So it was just like this old ramshackle farmhouse. Mm. But Ken was just like, listen, I'm just trying to rest and chill for the rest of my life. Uh, Ken was finally not being terrible to Barbara, not because he wasn't a horrible person, but because he was too old to chase her around the house anymore. Barbara, however, was a mess. She had spent the last decade isolated from nearly everyone, and it was definitely apparent in her behavior. In fact, at one point, David went to the kitchen to grab a beer. uh, And... Barbara corners him and just goes, you don't know this, but Catherine's got a screw loose. And he's just like, uh, sure, whatever. And she's like, no, I'm serious. If you, if you fuck up, she's going to kill you. And David didn't believe it though, because he'd only ever seen her beat that one guy. And she'd never been anything but nice to David. Uh, yeah. Cause you were nice to her. So you didn't fuck up. Well, wait till you fuck up. Well, they got married a couple days after her 18th birthday. It was super cheap ceremony. David was drunk because he was so nervous, but he didn't blow it. They had a party afterward. The folks from the slaughterhouse were there. The Knight family, the Kellett family. They went back to David's company issued apartment to consummate their marriage. They had sex three times and David fell asleep. Catherine was not asleep. She was sitting there thinking about all of the snide comments that David's family had made that they thought that she didn't get. But she did get him. She just decided she wasn't going to beat anybody's ass on her wedding day. Oh, goodness gracious. So she wanted to talk about it with David. So she tried to smack him awake. And when that didn't work, she climbed on top of him and began choking him. Oh, no. Which woke him up. And he was very confused. He was just like, why Why did you choke me? And she's just like, I wanted to talk to you. He's like, I have scratches. I am now bruised. I don't understand what's going on. And Catherine was... Showing him who she really was. On a wedding night. Well, so what happens next is that she demands to have sex three more times. Because her mom had told her that on their wedding night, they had had sex five times and she wanted to beat her dad's record. Oh my God, come on. Which totally turned David off. And he told her, he's like, listen, I'm going to go to the bathroom, freshen up. I'll meet you in the bedroom. And she's like, 
you better be here. He goes in the bathroom, the only door in the entire apartment that locks. Mm-hmm. Locks the door, climbs into the tub, and goes back to sleep. Oh, my God. <laughs> Passes out while Catherine is banging on the bathroom door. Oh, no. After that, though, she cooled it. She turned off her crazy, as men are wont to say. They went back to work where David would show up exhausted from Catherine wanting to have sex all night long. And she would show up full of energy, ready to cut animals up. She did all of her wifely duties expertly because Barbara was so depressed Mm -hmm. that she had stopped doing things. So Catherine sort of became very domestic when she was a child. So now that she is an adult, she's cleaning everything. She's fixing all the clothes. She's making him new clothes. She was trying so hard to be perfect. And David couldn't really figure out what had happened with the whole choking situation. But since things seemed normal, he was just going to push that to the back and not bring it up anymore. Mm -hmm. The problem with all this is that Catherine was faking being the perfect wife and months of doing all this stuff and not really entirely being true to herself was taking a toll. And she started resenting him a little bit and she started like picking at him. Like if he was late, her big thing, and this is going to be repeated throughout this entire situation. Her big thing is she always says that someone she's dating is cheating on her. Everyone. This went on until 1975 and David got kind of sick of it. He was living in a home where his wife went from enraged to not and then back. It was super stressful. And then Catherine for a little bit just stopped bothering him. They had gone to visit her parents and she kind of, I guess, thought about, maybe she watched them and she wondered, like, I wonder why they've been married for so long and dad never stepped out on mom. And she's like, maybe that's because Barbara didn't bother Ken about all the stuff that he did. So they had a couple of months in 75 of calm. Okay. Until August when she found out she was pregnant. And every bit of progress they were making towards this being a normal relationship was over. One night he came home to change his clothes before going to the bar. And she was, she insisted that he was changing so he could go meet another woman. She took all of his clothes, threw them in the tub, covered them in lighter fluid and set them on fire. Oh, come on. The Aberdeen Fire Department shows up with her husband in tow. The tubs melted. The house is full of soot. The neighbors are all outside watching. David is mortified. And Catherine is just staring them all. Just staring at them. Like, I dare you to say what something you gonna about do? what's going on right now. <laughs> the fuck y'all looking at? <laughs> David didn't go to the bar for weeks. Mind you, he's not at the bar. He's going home and come. he's going to work and coming back home. She's still accusing him of cheating all day, every day. He went back to drinking so he could just get away from her. <clears throat> one night he came home from the bar and she was in one of her rages while ironing his clothes and she hit him in the face with the iron <clears throat> he ran to the bathroom to get away from her and she screamed and hit the door with the iron until finally she quieted down and begged for forgiveness 
David forgave her. The next day he walked into well, <laughs> I see your face. Brian is shaking his head. No, I would not. I'm like, oh, that's okay. Well, I forgive you, but guess what? I'm <laughs> leaving. The next day, his boss took him to the hospital. No one asked any questions, which is exactly what he wanted. He actually started doing what you do when you're in an abusive relationship. He started bending backward to make Catherine less upset, mm-hmm. telling her where he was at every moment of the day, coming home early or exactly on the dot so she wouldn't freak out. One night, he was four minutes late. And as soon as he walked into the kitchen, she hit him with a cast iron skillet, cracking his skull. Oh, my God. He dragged himself to a neighbor's house to get help. He woke up the next morning at the hospital with Catherine crying next to him. David told the police that his wife was alone and she was pregnant and she said she had heard somebody outside and she was so scared. And he came home later than usual from drinking and she must have thought that I was an intruder. So you're making excuses now. Yep. Great. And the New South Wales Police Department were happy to accept the story because domestic violence is sticky and they didn't want to get involved. And David didn't make a formal complaint. Eventually, he went home. Catherine showered him with affection. Also very common with abusive relationships. Mm-hmm. He went back bomb. to work. And she was actually forced to stay home because she was getting close to her due date. But at home, Catherine obsessed over the fact that David was going to leave her with the baby. A month later, David went to the bar for a tournament and told Catherine he'd be home at 11 p.m. When he didn't come home, she called the bar and she told, and he told her he'd be home in an hour. She's like, but you said you'd be home now. And in front of his friends and her friends, he very drunkenly told Catherine, well, maybe I won't come home at all since you're being annoying. No. When he got home later, she was ready with the frying pan, uh, but he ducked. Yeah. She swung again and missed and broke a light switch. In the darkness, he was able to escape and get back in his car and drive away. Bro. God. Now, David felt bad because uh, everything Catherine was accusing him of, he was absolutely doing. Oh, what the hell? Uh, what no <laughs> no 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 you can't do that <clears throat> how dare you my he God. had been seeing another woman for months it actually it started after she began accusing him so uh, it was it did not start before but that doesn't matter because he still did it yeah and right after the frying pan attack he decides he's going to make a plan to be with this new girl in Queensland. And that new girl told him that she was pregnant too. David's at this point, like I need to get out of town before Catherine kills me. Catherine goes into labor May of 1976. And David is supposed to pack a bag and meet her at the hospital while she goes there with her mom. Instead, he got in his car And drove out of Aberdeen. Catherine gave birth to her first child, Melissa Ann, with her only her mother and father and sister by her side. That's sad. In fact, her sister Joy just went out searching for David. And she went back to the house. Everything in his the house was there that belonged to him, Mm -hmm. but his car was gone. His friends were like, Oh, maybe he had an accident. We should check and 
the road. Joy's like, mm, I don't think so. And Catherine's like, I definitely don't think so. Mm. So this moment that she's supposed to be bonding with her baby, she is just loathing the existence of David. No one really understands this very dark place where Catherine is right now. She goes home with the baby. And after several weeks of being alone with Melissa, she starts just walking the streets in a blind rage with the baby in like a stroller. Oh no. And her neighbors call the police because she is like walking with the stroller, just banging it around, like completely gone. So the police pick her up. They drop the baby at her parents' house and they take Catherine to St. Elmo's hospital in Tamworth. Now there were some whispers that she might have borderline personality disorder. But ultimately, the hospital diagnoses her with postpartum depression. They tried to give her an IQ test, but since she hadn't read any books or had to write anything in the last five years, Mm. she was almost illiterate. The test gave an IQ in the 80s, but that didn't line up with the person they were talking to. She was very cognizant of things. In fact, one of her doctors said, Catherine Knight is a psychopath and a narcissist. And you are being manipulated into getting into and releasing her early. She's released seven days later. I'm going right. to say that doctor was absolutely right. He was right. Oh, God. So she collects the baby from her parents and it's all calm for a few days. And one day a man, he's a drifter in town. Mm-hmm. He just kind of wanders around transient. He's walking the train tracks and he hears a baby crying. And he's like, oh, hmm. Well, maybe somebody's out here with their kid. And as he nears the tracks, he sees the baby on the train tracks. This like the train is close enough that the everything's vibrating. Uh, and he runs and scoops Melissa up. Oh my god. To take her to town. In town, Catherine is in full-blown rage mode, face red. She's so angry that she can barely speak. And she's just like growling and grunting. She walks into the town general store. She grabs an axe and just roars and walks back into the street. The police were called at this point and they're just kind of watching her. She's pacing up and down the street, swinging the axe in the air. The other people are coming out of their houses, watching her, which is only making her more angry. And she goes to swing the axe at somebody who's watching Mm -hmm. and she hears Melissa crying and it startles her enough Because she thought she was sure she killed this baby. Uh, They were able to subdue her and they take her back to St. Elmo's. Where she is forcefully medicated. And then it's almost like that crazy beast on the street is gone. They release her again. But this time, Ken takes her home and he goes, we're keeping the baby. We'll take care of her until you get better. Mm -hmm. Which is pretty good because Catherine was filled with revenge. And mind you, these situations I'm explaining are happening weeks apart. So this baby is maybe like two months old at this point. Oh, my God. So another night, she goes next door and she bangs on her neighbor's door. These are actually the same neighbors who helped David and the Macbeths. And she's like, my baby's sick. I need help. And 16-year-old Maggie Macbeth opens the door and agrees to help her. She's like, I'll drive you to your baby, but I got to bring my little brother. Mm Mm-hmm. As soon as they get in the car, Catherine drops the sweet act and she's just like, we have to drive to Queensland. I have to kill David and his whore. Oh, my God. 
Now, for the listeners not up on Australian geography, Aberdeen is in the southeastern part of the country. I guess it's about 200 miles away from Sydney, Australia, which is what most of us around the world know. Queensland is located a nice 17-hour drive north, northwest, about 1,500 kilometers away, which is over 1,000 miles for those of us in the godless U.S. who keep using the horrible system of measurement. Yes. I'd be like, hey, you got gas money, then sure, 17-hour drive, yeah, let's go. That's, wait, is that to and from, or is it? That's two. Oh, hell no. Okay, never mind. Well, so Maggie's like, I, I can't drive to Queensland, like my, my parents. And Catherine actually stabs her. It's a very shallow stab, but it's enough to scare the girl. Mm. They end up stopping at a gas station to fill up. And as soon as Maggie gets out of the car, she runs into the gas station. She tells the store clerk, Kathleen Knight is going to kill me and my brother. He calls the police and then he's like, you can't go back out there. She's going to hurt you. But Catherine is threatening to kill the little boy. Mm-hmm. He had tried to run too and he got scooped. Uh, she got him. So the police arrive and they try and talk her down. And that ended with the kids and other civilians safe. But one of the cops arms was slashed from wrist to elbow. And he also got stabbed in the ribs while they were forcing her into the back of the cop car. And she was just cackling. This time, the staff at the hospital realized that David Kellett is in danger. He is the main discussion of every therapy appointment she has. She doesn't care that she permanently traumatized a 16-year-old girl. It was, I'm going to go to Queensland and torture David's mother until he tells until she tells me where he is. And then I'm going to go kill David and his girlfriend and anyone who sees me do it. Then I'm going to come back to Aberdeen and kill anyone who helped David leave me, starting with the mechanic who fixed his car. Oh, my God. So the oh, police decide no. to go to Queensland and tell David, just to let you know, your wife is committed to a hospital and she wants to kill you. I'd say leave the country. I think they thought that like this would just prep David. But in fact, it made him feel guilty. He was like, look at what I did to her. This I, is all my fault. So he leaves his girlfriend I who's about him. to have a baby in Queensland to go back to his wife. I don't like David. <laughs> he goes to the hospital, requests that she's returned to his care. He'll make sure she takes her meds. No. He goes, they pick up Melissa. <clears throat> in fact, uh, mm. when they opened the door, he was worried that Ken was going to be mad at him. But it was actually Barbara who opened the door and immediately attacks him like, this is your fault, screaming at him, hitting him. And Catherine steps in and like knocks her mom down. She's like, no, mom, I got Protecting her husband. Yeah, I got this, mom. I'll take care of him later. Don't worry about that. Well, they take their daughter home, but after a couple days, it's almost unbearable for both of them, the amount of gossip and people watching them in town. So they moved to Woodridge, which is a suburb of Brisbane. It was a fresh start. <clears throat> Neither of them had any family there. No one whispered. <clears throat> David's mom comes from Queensland to live with them to take care of Melissa during the day. While both Catherine and David go to work, Catherine takes her medication, which does help. She's a stellar employee gifted with a knife. Uh, She would still get people back like in high school, but it wasn't like before. She was free to be not perfect this time. And they had all this excess money because both of them were working. But the only time that Catherine was really happy was at the meat processing plant. And on the very quiet drive back home. 
This went on for years. Catherine going through the motions. Her medication kind of cutting off that passion that David, she and David had at the beginning. Mm -hmm. They had a second child, Natasha Marie, on March 6, 1980. David was there. He held her hand through labor. She did not have the same response. In fact, what happened was that she was bored. And she resented David. And it started to show. Everything sort of ended the day after Natasha's fourth birthday. March 7th, 1984, she packs up everything, no words, takes the kids, moves back to Aberdeen. It was, it was um, like, it was almost like she didn't care. Hmm. David still loved her, but he was kind of relieved. She filed for divorce and she took the kids to her parents' house. Catherine got a small house in Musselbrook and went back to work at the slaughterhouse. It had been eight years and she acted like absolutely nothing had happened. In 1986, though, she was lifting a hog and she hurt her back. They rushed her to the hospital, but this was a career ending injury. Uh, She ended up having to file for disability, workplace compensation. She gets an apartment from the government through the housing commission just outside of Aberdeen. She's 31 years old and has no idea what to do with her life. Melissa's 10. And while Catherine did warn Melissa about boys, she did not make the same mistake that Barbara did. But Catherine was lonely, so she started leaving the children at home at night and going to hang out with men. Where she meets a local miner named David Saunders. He wasn't from Aberdeen, so he gave her a chance. Because what was happening was, even if she met a new guy in Aberdeen Mm -hmm. who worked at the slaughterhouse, within a day, other people would be like, she's crazy, you should leave her alone. So David didn't wasn't in the same circle. They moved in after a couple months. The moods were up and down. She got in little fights with him and he'd go back to his apartment in Sconce and sleep there. On their anniversary, he showed up with flowers, expecting a nice night. Catherine was in a mood pacing the kitchen. She walked outside, picked up the family dog that David had bought for the children and slit the dog's throat and said, if I ever catch you running around on me, this is what I'm going to do to you. David's like, I'm ha- I'm happy. I would never. But she picks up a pan and she swings it at him. And uh, oh. he put his arm up and she broke his arm hitting him. With a pan? Yes. Oh, my God. And then as he's like on the ground, she proceeds to beat him with the pan until he is unconscious. Oh, my fucking God. For a week, he didn't respond to her at all. He stayed at home. When the bruises went away, he started doing some works, some shifts at work. His coworkers actually mocked him for being jumpy. And the old men who worked there were like, nah, nah. <laughs> He's dating Catherine Knight. Mm-hmm. He has a reason to be jumpy. Yep. They, they, exactly. The older men knew. So what happened is that Catherine camped out of his apartment one day. And as he's walking home, he expects violence when he sees her. But instead what he gets is Catherine crying and begging for forgiveness. He takes her back. Things are calm for a couple months and then it goes dark again. When David asks her why she's so upset, she's pregnant and she begins obsessing over David leaving her. So David tries to show her that he's serious about her by putting a down payment on the house. June 1988, she has her third daughter, Sarah Saunders. Now David was like, after she gives birth, it's going to be great. Nope. Catherine was back in the postpartum state. And at the beginning of 1989, they are barely speaking. Hmm. 
Catherine got her workers' compensation. She paid off the rest of the house. They started fighting. The first big fight was because he came home and the baby was still in a dirty diaper. Another time he came home and all his work clothes were dirty. And he was like, what have you been doing all day? She responded by going and get a knife, not a knife, a pair of scissors, and cutting his shirts in front of him. That's not an answer. <laughs> then she went to cut his work pants and he was like, no, 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 those are my only other pants. And he goes to grab them and she stabs him in the stomach with the scissors Ugh. and twists them as she pulls them uh, out. Come on. Then she went to go get the iron and David hopped into his car and drove away. I'm done. He didn't speak to her for several days. He was like, this is the second time this woman's tried to kill me. I'm not going to give her a third chance. Mm -hmm. He only went back to Aberdeen to try and see his daughter. And that's when he learned that Catherine had gone to the police and lied to them and gotten the apprehended violence order, which is specifically to keep someone violent away from you. What? Excuse me? This order said that he could not contact or see Catherine or the kids. What did she say that he did to her? I don't know, fam. <laughs> because, oh my God. Like, I, I would have just went to the police station. Do you see this stab wound in my stomach? She stabbed me. I didn't do shit to her. Well, next guy she dated is, his name was John Chillingworth. And she actually met him the day that they came, he came back to Aberdeen. They had worked together when she was younger. But he he was 10 years older than her. And he was honestly kind of creeped out when she was coming on to him as a 17-year-old. Mm -hmm. Now, they were roughly 44 and 34. And he was like, yeah, don't mind. Now, John was not like the Davids. The first time Catherine swung on him, he ducked and he smacked the hell out of her. In fact, she threw him out of her house, mainly because she was kind of startled that he just hadn't taken the abuse. She begged him to come home the next day. You were just going to stay in her ticket? <laughs> and bless her heart, Melissa, like what a lovely child. All she heard from her mom was that John hit her. So when John comes back, Melissa's like, you hit my mom and like gets mad at him. Mm. And he smacks her too. And he's like, oh sit God. down, little girl. Oh my God. Catherine gets pregnant. And John was like, maybe we should get married. But he realizes that Catherine doesn't care about being married. So he's like, bet, this is awesome. Throughout this pregnancy, all the same accusations, just like the first David's and just like the first David, John started sleeping with somebody else. Oh, you dumbass. Her only son, Eric, was born in 1990. His father was present. And right after he was born, Catherine was a domestic queen again. John felt bad about cheating because she was just being so awesome. So he tells her the truth. No. She walks into the bathroom, punches the glass container, holding his like bridge, breaking it. Mm -hmm. Then she walks out and punches him square in the jaw, breaking some of his real teeth, too. That night, he went to his company sponsored apartment and then came back to the house and picked up his stuff. He found Catherine in their bedroom. She was overdosing on all of the sleeping pills in the house. Oh, no. He drove her to the hospital. Of course, guilty for driving her to suicide. They kept her for observation for a week. Things went back to normal. But this time, Catherine began cheating. And she planned it. So one night, when when Jack came home from work, He'd see. John 
came home from work, he would see it. He walked into the house, found her having sex with another man in their bed. He's just like, you know what? I'm done with this. He leaves the house, never comes back. He actually moved away from Aberdeen, quit drinking, ended up becoming a drug and alcohol counselor, and spent the rest of his life helping other addicts. John Chillingham is the only man to escape Catherine Knight with no permanent injuries, and he's the last one to escape alive. Oh, great. The man Catherine was cheating with was John Price, and the affair had been going on for a year before Catherine decided to use him to hurt her ex. As their affair turned into a real relationship, it was pretty good in the beginning. Pricey, as he was called in town, brought out a certain gentleness in Catherine. He knew about her past. He didn't really care. She met his two kids. They liked her. Her own children really liked him. They were like, this is probably the nicest, gentlest person you've ever dated. Mm -hmm. Just like normal, after a little bit, she starts accusing him of cheating. She yells. She hits him. But he is completely smitten with her. And anybody who sees can tell. People in town actually try and warn him, but he decides to take Catherine at her word. And he's just like, listen, you were just protecting yourself from evil men. And those men before you were weak, before me were weak. They couldn't handle a strong woman. In 1993, the infidelity argument stops. And now she's mad because Price is not marrying her. Now, John Price had been married before and he felt like, his relationship went sour after they got married and he'd asked Catherine about her first marriage and it seemed like it was the same thing. They'd been happy and then they got married and it went to hell. Mm -hmm. So he's like, why ruin a good thing with a wedding? In 1995, he tries to make her happy and he says, move in with me. He's a supervisor at the mine. The company gave him a really nice three bedroom house. She decides to keep her house and move in with him which was great because he didn't exactly like the fact that she had animal skins and bones all over her house anyway there you go things are great for a year they live like a married couple she starts asking about getting married again oh god these fights happen daily until about 1998 and then as a retaliation for fighting with him one night she takes a video camera that he bought for her for Christmas and she videotapes things that John had taken from the trash at the mine, mainly old expired med kits. And she mails that tape to his boss and he gets fired after 17 years. What the hell? Even after he explained that all of those supplies were expired, they wanted nothing to do with him or Catherine. Wow. <clears throat> he drove home, gathered all of Catherine's stuff, and chucked it out the front door. When she got home, she discovered all of the locks to the house were changed. They stood on the porch screaming at each other for about two hours until the neighbors threatened to call the police. She picked up her stuff and she went back to McQueen Street. John was free from Catherine. But he came up against some pushback. While he wasn't like officially blacklisted from the mining companies, other men knew about Catherine and they were kind of wary of dealing with any man who was dealing with her. Mm. She started hanging out at the bars again, looking for him. And their paths crossed. He tried to avoid her, but eventually one night he decides to just say hi. They go back to sleeping together. The news of the two of them back together goes through town in a second. And the next day his friends show up at his new job to have an intervention. 
They're just like, listen, we don't want to watch you hurt yourself with this woman. Either she goes or we go. John's like, listen, it's just sex. I'm not going to move back in with her or anything. People in Aberdeen actually contacted David Kellett and were like, you need to come talk to this guy. (laughs) So David Kellett meets him at a bar and shows John all of the scars that Mm. he got from the years he lived with Catherine. Mm -hmm. He even shares the warning that Barbara gave to him before their wedding. If you cross her, she'll kill you. He says, do you understand? This isn't a joke. She will kill you. John sat there kind of not taking it seriously. Dude, you got all these people coming to you saying, stay away, stay away. You're going to die. Before John even returned home that night, David had already left Aberdeen. Just being there was triggering for him. Mm -hmm. But he had done everything he could to save John Price. John started allowing Catherine to come by his house for date nights. She would cook for him. They'd eat, have sex. She'd go home. She started pushing for more in the relationship. No. It would escalate to Catherine screaming at him. He'd shove her out the front door of the house, lock the door. By 2000, the harassment is just incessant. They get in a fight and he remind her why they're not together. And she, of course, is like, well, listen, that's not who I'm not that person anymore. I won't do that again. And he's like, of course you won't do it again because you can't ruin my 17 year career again because I don't have it anymore. I am mm-hmm. never letting you live here again. This fight happened weekly. She'd scream, calm down. They'd make up. One night they were together and he told her, he would never let her hold any power over his life ever again because her temper caused her to wreck things. And Catherine was offended. (laughs) In fact, she told him, you've never really seen me angry. She got up and started hitting him, stabbed him in the chest with a knife. He grabbed her, threw her out of the house onto the street. The blade was in one of his ribs and it was in such a location that if it had been about a half an inch, if she'd been a half inch off of her mark, she would have stabbed him in the heart. Oh, God. In fact, and then as he was standing there, he was like, Oh crap. The back door's open. He rushes to lock the back door. She's there banging on the, on all of the doors. He locks all the first floor windows and eventually she leaves. That is February 28th, 2000. I can't, I just can't, February 29th, he stops at the Scone Magistrate Court on his way to work and gets a restraining order against Catherine. Mm -hmm. He tells his co-workers, that day at work, if I don't come to work, you need to come look for me because I think that means that Catherine will have killed me. His co-workers beg him not to go home. They're like, they they, at first they think that he's just like being a tough guy. Mm -hmm. But in fact, uh, he says, I'm worried that if I show up, if I'm not there and the children are there, she's going to kill the kids. So I have to go back just to make sure they're okay. He goes to the house after the kids get home from school. He has them pack up, go stay the night with their friends and have a sleepover. He actually doesn't even, he spends most of the night, February 29th at his friend's house, like across the street. She just stayed there. Just kind of watching, making sure she wasn't there at 11 PM. He's confident she's not going to come. He goes back to his house. Don't tell me to go. Catherine, on the other hand, spent her day differently. First thing she does is she goes to his house 
while he's not there. Mm-hmm. Yes, I like that. She films the kids almost as if she's making like a will. And she's talking on the camera about like things she's going to give to the children once she's gone. Then she went to town, brought new lingerie, and waited. And after she saw him go into his house, she broke in, watched a little TV, took a shower, and then sexually assaulted him. She pretty much like mounted him while he was sleeping. He didn't even realize what was going on. Like he was asleep. Mm -hmm. And she'd actually hung her bag of knives above his bed. Oh. When they finished, he was loud. He was awake. And he was like, oh, no. And he actually, like, pushes her off of him, which makes her angry. Yeah, bad, bad move. She grabs one of the knives and stabs him between the ribs, collapsing one of his lungs. He gets up and tries to run away, but his back is an even easier target, and she stabs him two more times from behind. He fell down, and she sits on his chest, stabbing him over and over again. Somehow, I don't know if it was a rush of adrenaline, he throws her off of him and manages to get outside onto the porch before just the adrenaline wears off and he kind of succumbs to his injuries. Mm-hmm. She drags him back inside and stabs him to death. Then she cleans herself off, drives into town with his car, goes to the ATM and empties his bank account, comes home, skins him, hangs the skin from a meat hook from the top of the door in the lounge, decapitates him, cooks part of his body with baked potatoes, pumpkin beetroot, zucchini, cabbage, yellow squash, and gravy, puts two servings on the table, and then puts those and puts the names of his children, Rebecca and John, in like little place cards Uh on the table. Yeah. A third meal is tossed in the backyard. She put his his head in a pot with vegetables, and then she took the rest of his skinned body and arranged it in his favorite chair with his arms slung over an empty soda bottle and his legs crossed. Oh my God. She leaves a handwritten note with a piece of his skin on it, accusing him of raping one of her daughters and his own children. Then she takes all of her psych meds that were in the cabinet, climbs into the blood soaked bed and just waits to die. Wow. So, I gotta, I gotta say one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, while you were mentioning all that, the, the preparation for the food and stuff, mm-hmm. my stomach did start growling. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> Not because it was advertising to me, just because I'm hungry. Okay. Just, it's just a funny moment. It happened. <laughs> well, true to their word, when he didn't show up for work. His co-workers were like, we need to go check on him. Mm-hmm. In fact, they showed up at 6 a.m. Oh, oh, they were ready. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, the co-worker was greeted with a bloody handprint on the front door and a blood smear on the porch leading back inside the house. They call the police. The police break in to find a comatose Catherine. The first responders are horrified. They didn't even understand what they were looking at. The entire downstairs, the stairwell leading down there is just covered in blood. And finally, one of the other police officers goes, that's a nose. That's pubic hair. And they realize that they are looking at John Price's flesh. 
Later on, they'll discover that she actually stabbed him 37 times in many vital organs. Most of the men present that day quit working as cops after viewing the scene. There were more than one report of suicide. And the few who didn't quit stayed away from meat for a little bit. I, I would. I would. In fact, the police arrived quick enough to discover that the pot with his head in it was still warm, which means that they got there shortly after she finished, which also means she didn't have time to die. Oh, no. They also deduced that the meal in the backyard was from her trying the food and being disgusted by it. And the interesting thing was that the skinning had been done so expertly that after the autopsy, the coroner was able to kind of put him back together. Oh, no. I don't know. I don't like that. It's an awful image, but like at least he could sort of have an open casket. Yeah, sort of. I'm not really. Anyway, go ahead. Listen, a, a skilled mortician mm-hmm. could probably make it work. Okay, yeah. Gotta cover the neck wound, though. Mm. Two days later, Catherine wakes up from her coma, and the police are like, we're ready to interview you. But they kind of forgot about her mental health issues. Catherine's like, I don't remember anything from the past couple days. And if this was the first time that Catherine had hurt a man, they might have been willing to accept that. Mm -hmm. But while the police are kind of like, well, we got to wait for her to be in a better headspace. Hundreds of people show up at the police station and they're just like, we want to give a statement about Catherine Knight. Oh, oh. Everyone in in Aberdeen is terrified of what will happen if she is ever, like, let out. Mm -hmm. So the first time she shows up to court, she tries to plead guilty for manslaughter, saying that she remembers nothing, but obviously she did it because there's evidence. The judge is like, this is the worst crime I've ever seen in my entire life. Absolutely, there is no such thing. You're not even allowed (laughs) to plead anything right now, honestly. (laughs) Unless you are pleading to first degree murder, I don't want to hear you. I plead guilty to everything. She was arraigned on March 2nd, 2001, where she entered a plea of not guilty. Her trial was originally planned for July 23rd, but it got pushed back to October 15th, 2001, because her lawyer actually got sick. During that time, they decided to have her psychologically evaluated. Not to prove that she was insane or anything, Mm. but they just wanted to prove that she was competent enough to enter a plea. And that was when she was formally given a borderline personality diagnosis. But in fact, some of her old psychiatrists came forward and were like, no, 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 no. We disagree. Don't do this. I'll explain why they said that in a little bit. Okay. Trying to find a jury for this trial was pretty rough. Um, Almost all of Aberdeen knew about the legend of Catherine Knight. (laughs) And Justice Barry O'Keefe gave the jurors the, uh, the opportunity to back out. Because the the pictures of the crime scene were particularly gruesome. And about five people did remove themselves. But of the pool of about 60 potential jurors, they did find enough people for the trial. So, the borderline personality situation here is that Catherine pretty much said she frequently dissociated and had been... This is what she did on the night the crime happened. Mm -hmm. Her lawyer used this diagnosis to say that she was not culpable for her actions. Now, I have to say this because a lot of people don't. This is a. I wouldn't say it's a rare diagnosis, but it's not as common as some of the other ones we've heard. Usually when we talk about killers, we hear schizophrenic. Right. It's a very hard mental illness to have. It's hard to diagnose. 
but I feel like I should just explain it because a lot of people who have mental illnesses really find the way that it is portrayed in court to be very disrespectful. Hmm. Yes, Catherine did have some of the symptoms, but dissociation is not you forgetting who and where you are and you just black out for a month. Right, right. Dissociation is your mind separating itself from the information and stimulus coming in. It can affect your sense of identity, your sense of self. It affects your sense of time. Uh, people dissociating report feeling like they are almost outside of themselves watching them experience the world. They don't forget what's happening to them. It's not a blackout. You're just kind of watching and not feeling what's happening right. to you. <clears throat> My friends who have had this have told me, who have, who have yeah. <laughs> experienced it, yeah. have told me that they feel just numb um, and like they're watching themselves in a film. Yeah, it's it's like really hard to explain. Um, it's like you're a third person. Or not third, first person. Right, but because this is such a hard thing to explain to people who don't understand it, the lawyer was able to mischaracterize this aspect of her supposed mental illness, and it was definitely on purpose. In fact, one of my best friends for the last decade has BPD, and you know who this person is, Brian, but I won't say their name on air because this diagnosis gets a really bad rap. Okay. People treat you poorly for having it. I have come across dozens upon dozens of articles that just are like, this is why you shouldn't date someone with BPD. It's a very difficult illness to manage. And I've known three different people in my life who are managing it and are nothing like this. Yeah, I know a few as well. Catherine and her lawyer put on a whole show. So at the beginning of the trial, they, you know, read off all of your crimes. Mm -hmm. Catherine begins begging to leave the courtroom. She cries and she begins wailing. She has an entire fit when they bring out the photos of the crime scene and they actually have to sedate her. Thankfully, the jury didn't care at all if she remembered committing <laughs> the crime because her bloody fingerprints were all over John's house and uh, she was the only person in town, one of the few people in town who could fillet a man with that much skill and the only one with the motive to do it. The judge sentenced her to life in prison and then added to her file never to be released. Oh, damn. She was the first woman in Australia to receive this punishment. And I remember thinking at the time, all because she killed one man? Sure, it was gruesome, but I've read worse. Mm -hmm. But now, after researching this, Catherine Knight was a menace to everyone in Aberdeen from 15 years old to 46. Like, I get why nobody in this area wanted her there at all. Yeah. So Catherine has been in the uh, Malua High Security Prison ever since. She is escorted by four armed guards because even medicated, they see her as still dangerous. She wakes up at 7 a.m. She eats breakfast in the same room as the other prisoners, but nowhere near them. They walk her to her job in the prison. They handcuff her to her station which is out of reach of all of the other inmates where she assembles small, intricate earpieces. She is very good at her job, actually so good that it's the, the job that pays the most in the prison. Mm -hmm. And she got it because she's the best at doing it. Of course. And interestingly enough, the prisoners call her Nana and she often handles disputes between <clears throat> the women in prison before guards are called. Sometimes when they prisoners get upset with the guards, she tells them to knock it off and they do. Her word is pretty much the law 
under the law. Oh my god! Because people are still scared of her, even now. Like 2021, she is a 65 year old woman. When she is at cell time, she crafts. She's turned her love of meticulous knife work into drawings, paintings, pottery, knitting, intricate pieces. Her artwork is so good that the prison put it up in the visitor and guard section. Some pieces have been sold to help fund programs in the prison, but she doesn't sign them. Mm. She doesn't actually like the idea of people buying it because she's the killer. There are people who would. Exactly. There, I'm like, there are people in the States who are like, absolutely, I will sign anything you want for some money. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, in the last 20 years, Catherine has never <laughs> been given a cellmate. The prison thinks that she's still a risk. And so the only way to keep everyone else safe around her is to have these guards on her whenever she's around anyone. That's, she's not allowed to be alone except in herself. It's pretty smart. Honestly, I agree. Like this is one of those situations where I am pretty solid in what the courts <laughs> did. Normally yeah. we're like mad at the justice system, yeah. but I'm like, no, you guys are good. <laughs> New South Wales. High five. Absolutely. Oh my God. On you. Um, now a lot of people who listen to this podcast often email me asking for more modern stories. The problem with modern stories is that there are people who are still alive, mm -hmm. like her four children, Melissa and Natasha Kellett, Sarah Saunders and Eric Chillingworth. These are real people with who are in their thirties and forties and they are just trying to live their lives and not deal with this. None of her kids have anything to do with her. John Price did have three children total. Rebecca, Rosemary, and John. Rebecca and John, there's no mention of them mm. in any publications. Um, the one thing I did find was that John's daughter, Rosemary, who was not there when the crimes happened, is not fond of sensationalism about her father's death. And I found an article where she spoke about how distasteful it was that someone was trying to make a movie about him. Yeah, I saw that. I was I was looking up and I was like, oh. And they were going to name it after his nickname for her. He called her the speckled hen. Oh, no. And I'm like, that's a term no. of endearment. Yeah. I don't want that movie. No. Um, Catherine did appeal her life sentence in June of 2006. She said that it was too severe to never give her a chance to rehabilitate. Justices Peter McClellan, Michael Adams and Megan Latham discussed the appeal in September of 2006 and they rejected it primarily because Catherine has never shown any remorse for this murder. And justice McCullen wrote in his formal response, this was an appalling crime almost beyond contemplation in civilized society. I would say he's right. And there's really no way we could ever know if Catherine has been rehabilitated mm -hmm. and I wouldn't risk trying to rehabilitate her and put her around other people. No, because even as a grandma, <laughs> she, she could uh, still slice and dice somebody. Oh my God, hell yeah. One of the things I was <clears throat> struck by this week's subject is how misogyny protected Catherine Knight. None of the men she ever dated ever filed a police report against her. And a lot of that was from the shame of reporting that they were abuse victims. Mm -hmm. I know some of these relationships were from decades ago, but this is still an issue today. Absolutely. Men are being abused by women like Catherine Knight, and we just don't talk about it, and they get laughed at when they report it or mocked by both men and women alike. And I, I'm just left wondering if globally the culture around domestic violence was different and less misogynistic, 
then maybe she would have been put in prison long before she murdered John Price. Right. Yeah. This is one of those few times in the podcast where I'm not upset with the justice system. I'm more upset with society. Mm. It is a thing. I just like this just came up like a day or two ago about men and being, you know, in relationships where they're being abused. I'm like, look, if you need someone to talk to, I will not judge you at all. Like, yeah, it's rough. It's it's uh, it's a thing. Men do get abused, and it's yeah, it's rough. It's and terrible. The thing is, globally around the world in the fifties, sixties, seventies, it was the same way. Mm-hmm. Like, you didn't want to show that you weren't masculine. And sure, Catherine Knight was six feet, and she was a, a very several of the books I read described her as having a sculpted physique. It's because she was constantly lifting, having things. She was built, but not like bodybuilder built. Yeah, she was just like a toned type. Right, she was toned. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and attractive, but like regardless of how tall she was, I... see, it's one of those weird things. Because in the beginning, we were like, "Yay, rah rah!" She's beating up her brothers who are touching her. Yeah, and, and then that... I'm like, now she's just beating up everybody. Yeah, I, I... forever. I love how the stories always like devolve into this like, yay, I'm cheering for this person because they have a like they had a rough time, but now they're like overcoming it. And then you then eventually it com- it becomes like them being the assaulter or like the mm-hmm. yeah, it's just well, that's the humanity and part of why I like doing this podcast, mm-hmm. because all of these people are human, which means there is it's multifaceted. There is good and bad in everybody. Unfortunately, in this case, the bad was very bad. It's usually very bad (laughs) when we talk about (laughs) these things. But one thing that we we learn is that they come from, they experience some of the the very human things that a lot of us have. Some of these people come from broken homes. That pops up all the time in our our stories. So that's important to me because I... I don't know why this is just one of those things that's really important to me, which is just even the worst of us are still people. And somehow me recognizing that allows me to kind of know my place. We all have a capacity for evil. And the thing that makes us different from everybody else is the fact that we choose not to do it. Exactly. That's how we handle it. What do we do with it? I don't believe in in looking at people and and treating them like they're boogeymen. This is a a monster. (laughs) I'm like, this is a person who did a monstrous thing. Mm -hmm. But make no mistakes. I talk about people on the TikTok all the time who kill people out of love for other people. So never say never, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what do you have for me today, Brian? Well, that was a great story. I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude. Goodness gracious. So, this week, mm-hmm. I'm going to let you know that I, I get lost easily inside of buildings I'm unfamiliar with. Oh. Like, uh... So for my job, you know, I go to hospitals and stuff like that. Right, like, you have to walk through all the winding <clears throat> hospital hallways. Uh-huh. The, the worst one is Hershey. That's where it is. Um, 
But like when I first would go to a hospital, I'd get lost a couple of times, but they have signs on the walls. I'm like, okay, well, at least I don't get that lost. I know which way I should be heading. Um, but can you just imagine if someone would just would, would just drop me off inside of like the Winchester Mystery House? I love the Winchester Mystery House. And like at night, and I have no idea where the hell I'm going, and all those winding in like trap doors and stuff. Listen, just... if we can go there, I would absolutely go there with you. <laughs> like, I, it take me, it would take me like forever to find my way out of that damn house. But, um, I've been saving the story. It's been in my back pocket for, I don't know, since we started the freaking podcast. I think, but this is one of my favorites. I decided to talk about it since it's getting closer and closer to freaking October. Can you believe that? Oh my god! Like I'm planning. It's what's, what's the twenty fifth? It's almost October. This Friday. Oh my god! I gotta get a damn costume. I know. <clears throat> so I figured, why not? You know, break it out. I'm ready. All right. So now, before we get into you know the spooky home house uh it's uh it's only right that we delve into the mind of its designer creator constructor yeah whatever she didn't uh, do anything not really she just got the plans she and she's hired like, people to yeah do it. so <clears throat> we're gonna talk you about know, i feel bad for her. yeah we'll talk a little bit about uh sarah winchester herself uh she was born sarah lockwood party um, the daughter of Leonard Party and Sarah Burns. She grew up uh, pretty well off. I mean, she spoke like four languages. Mm-hmm. So she, went, she spoke four languages. She went to like good schools. Mm-hmm. She was very beautiful and had a very sparkling personality. So I can't remember a picture of her. So I'm going to say, you know, she, she pretty, uh, she grew up pretty nicely. Uh, by the way, her family is from Connecticut. Um, oh. Yeah, that's, that's, basically where like this all started so mm-hmm. connecticut um, i know she didn't move west until later way in, later in yeah her life. yeah it's a pretty safe to visit um in the fall you know this time of year <laughs> you want to go to new england the, yeah the, new england is beautiful in the fall, yeah though, for absolutely real. um so i couldn't find where they met but on september 30th uh 1862 sarah married william wirt winchester I imagine if she was rich and he was rich. Well, there, yeah. It was arranged. That was the time, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, I just wrote a note. There's triple W's. She took no L's. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> he was the son of Oliver Winchester, the owner of the Winchester Repeating Arms Company, um, the creators of the Winchester Rifle. The Winchester Rifle. It's uh, said to be the gun that won the West. Mm-hmm. So they had one child. Her name was Annie Pardee. Uh, she unfortunately died about a month after she was born. A lot of my stories have tuberculosis in them. Yeah, you I'm know, not sure common. why. It's very common. Um, so tuberculosis was just that Rona, you know. Yeah, it really was. It was that Rona. Yes, it was. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's a poor joke. Oh my god. So of course it was the Rona of the time. 
Yeah, of course, it was, you know, kind of these types. Uh, so William wasn't spared from the, the disease and succumbed to it in 1881. Uh, not a consolation for having lost her husband, but she did inherit $20.5 million. Um, that's about $536. Hundred point three million dollars in today's cash. It was the entire fortune. Yeah, yeah she got like no, she got half. Of, well, yeah, she got half, half of, of the fortune. No, no, she got the the whatever. Oh, I was she, gonna say, yeah, holy yeah, yeah. Jesus! <laughs> also, she did. That's get, a lot of money. No, that means that the Winchester. No, what she got half family of, was worth a billion dollars. What she got half of was the ownership of the Winchester Repeating Arms Company. Oh, okay. So, which came with? <clears throat> excuse me. There goes my voice, which came with a nice income of $1,000 a day. That is $26,852.29 in today's money. Oh, I love it. Did you, you would have been making more than I make in a year in a day. Like, I'm fucking sick. I'm sick. When I read that, I was like, oh Being my God. Being a teacher God. is a, a thankless and not paying well job, y'all. Oh my God. They make. Like, goodness gracious. Anyway, so this means are and always were a big business. Yeah. So this made her one of the wealthiest women in the world. Uh, one, one of the wealthiest women in the world. What year would this have been? Um, 18, I'm guessing 1881, 18. That's when he died. So, okay. Because I'm trying to remember when Madam C.J. Walker was. She was born in 1867 and died in 1919. She was also one of the most, she was like the first black woman millionaire. So, and she's considered to be one of the most <laughs> rich women of the time. Yeah. And Sarah Winchester is more wealthy than Madam C.J. Walker by a lot. Oh my God. It's freaking crazy. <clears throat> so, I, I imagine there weren't too many women who had that, uh, yeah, but yeah, not the country. She was richest in the freaking world. Um, yeah, five hundred times more wealthy. It's crazy. And they lived around the same time. It's crazy. Oh my god. <laughs> I I was still sick about it, so I wrote some that's, other stuff. That just. <laughs> I was like the whole round, not flat world. That's, that's just doing me in, fam. That's so much money. Oh my god. It's almost unfathomable. It's the way that people talk about Jeff Bezos. And like, yeah. He makes 300, is it $300,000 a day? Oh, Something know, crazy. Care. And I'm just like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> like you're talking about a billion, but I really don't understand a billion practically. <clears throat> so for me, a billion and 500 million, same thing. Yeah, basically. I don't understand. Exactly. Yeah. It oh. might as all. Well, it might as all. Well, be monopoly bunny for me yeah because i have no idea what's going on so of course deeply saddened by the passing of her child and husband you know they they did pass you know 15 years 15 years apart still um but yeah still that's that. exactly um she does what any grieving person of that time would do uh-oh she goes to see a medium they were Houdini all the would rage. be so disappointed. <laughs> they were all the rage back then. Uh, side note: I'm pretty sure that um, 
we had that for oh we had that fortune telling law in PA. Oh, due to freaking Houdini. You remember when I was telling really? this, remember when I was telling the story about Houdini and um how he got he kind of got fortune telling outlawed. Right. Yeah. I mean, he was pretty aggressive about it. Too. Yeah. Pretty much lobbying the government. And I just remember I mean, that they were the- taking advantage of a very vulnerable public. This is true. Very true. And I'm not mad at him for it. Well, I'm yeah, the, I'll because, never be mad at Houdini. But like still. I said, I, I know a little bit about the story, and I feel like Sarah Winchester was taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. Um, so this medium, uh, they tell her that the Winchester family is cursed mm-hmm. because the guns that they made took so many lives. Mm-hmm. So, the, so the spirits that were killed by the guns were seeking vengeance. And in order to kind of save herself from the curse... Sarah had to build a home uh, for not only herself, but for the spirits as well. You got all this money, house us. Yeah, basically. You're making money off of our deaths. Like, mm, yeah. So the medium tells her that the home was to be situated in the west where the sun sets. So with her belongings in that inheritance that she just, you know, Oh, that money's um, ill-gotten gains. <laughs> she didn't want it though, to be honest. No, she would yeah. have rather had her husband. Yeah, absolutely. She moves from uh, New Haven, Connecticut, to San Jose, California, where she purchased an unfurnished eight-room farmhouse. Um, the house used to be yeah. The house used to only have eight rooms. Only eight rooms. And uh, I'll tell you later how many rooms it has. Okay. <laughs> I was thinking. So that, that that would be enough for anybody, right? Just eight rooms, maybe in their spirits. The spirits could have a room by themselves and, you know. Right. Hey, yeah, there you go. But, it's only me. Yeah, but I guess if your housing goes, they, you know, you got to gotta have some, make some renovations. So she hired carpenters, builders, and laborers. And they worked basically day and night on this house. Now, I like I said, I remember that. I've I've seen multiple things about this. Mm-hmm. How do you sleep? In a house you're you're, constru- you're that's constantly under construction. It pretty easily. My uncle, my grand uncle, he actually does like house flipping and stuff like that. Which is because, like you know, when there's been construction or them working on something out in front of my building, mm-hmm. I find it very bothersome. I don't know. I can sleep like the dead. So. <laughs> I definitely noticed that they are making sounds at like 6 a.m. Mm. Hmm. So they worked and worked on it until it was a seven story mansion. Cool, right? I didn't know it was seven stories. It was seven Holy stories. Holy jeez. Wait, was? It was seven stories. When was it seven stories? Um, Back when they first built it. Interesting. Because yep. it's not that big now. No, there's there's a reason why. Um, well, since Sarah didn't use any type of architect, uh, the house, oh no, the house was built pretty like haphazardly. Wait, 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 that plan came from her spirit friends. Oh, yes, yes, okay. Because a ghost is a good architect. Yes, 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 yes. 
but based on how the rooms were built, I'm pretty a little iffy on um how or on I'm a little iffy on if she got all of it from the ghosts. Right. So we're getting that. Like way I said, it looks beautiful. Oh, it is. It's a wonderful looking house. Um, like I love a good Victorian. So that's on top of the whole ghost thing. I would want to look at it just because it's pretty. Yeah, I know. Right. I'll go into the specs of the house a little later. Um, or is it a Victorian? Am I right? I think it was. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So when it was all said and done, the mansion had 161 rooms in it. Sarah was so determined to finish the mansion that she lived almost in solitude. So, no, no one lived with her. She Only people that were around her were the construction workers or the, the workers that she hired. Well, now, one thing that I did hear about her is that she stayed in mourning her whole life, didn't she? Yeah. Yeah, because she always she wore, wore black. She like, the black veil. She always wore black. Yep. So, you know, that was, I guess, in, what, honor of her husband? Yeah. Terrible. Eesh. Maybe it was for her husband Listen. or maybe for the, the, the spirits that, you know. Oh, that's that's true. Mm-hmm. Out of, like, respect for them. Yeah. I mean, I wear black all the time anyway, so I'm, like, <laughs> I'm always in mourning as well. I here across from you also wearing mostly <laughs> <Yeah>. black. <laughs> We're both in mourning for what? Who cares? We're mourning something. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Gosh, that was such a dark thought. <laughs> okay, Gen Z, Brian. Oh, my God. <laughs> Not not cracking jokes on y'all. I find Gen Z humor to be it's pretty yeah wonderful. It's pretty nice. Whenever one of my coworkers is just like talking about like, oh, I hope I get hit by a bus. So I don't have to come into work tomorrow. Mm. I love it. I think it's hilarious. I mean, we're millennials, so we kind of we get that. Yep. <laughs> we get that shit. <laughs> it's just super funny. It's just it's just bad that y'all, a younger generation, like is feeling like that. When... Yeah, I'm like, why are y'all so depressed? <laughs> I'm sorry. It was like we kind of did this to you, but <laughs> did we want hope for the future? <laughs> no, fuck that shit. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness. September fifth, nineteen twenty-two. Sarah passes away in her sleep oh. due to a heart failure. Oh, dang. Yep. <clears throat> she was 83. Oh, okay. Not that young. No, no, no. So, and when she died, all construction on the house pretty much stopped. Right. So, now let's get into the house, because there are some things I skipped over. So, we're going into, in, we're going backwards and going into the house and all the construction. Well, the only things I know for sure is that there's a seance room, and it's still there. Mm-hmm. And that... It's not as many rooms there now as you said. No. Because they recently found like the 101st room Mm -hmm. like two summers ago. Yeah. And they didn't know where, like they legitimately were like, oh, look, a new room. (laughs) And I think that's so weird because it's been like a monument for decades. Yeah. Yeah. Historical site. That's what I mean. Not a monument. So it did have 161 rooms. Uh and it was seven stories. Yeah. I are there kn- pictures from this time? I'm not sure. I think there are. Oh, I'm pretty sure you have to lo- you have to dig for them. But I know you're wondering just what's all behind those doors and those 161 rooms. Well, this 24,000 square foot mansion includes 40 bathrooms, two ballrooms, and nine kitchens, and a seance room. Jesus. Um, the seance room was called the Witch's Cap, which is where you know she would sarah would go to get her plans it's it's from, from scrolling it looks like a fancy mansion that a rich person like, yeah in today's time would own i yeah 
Like this is so. How many square feet again? Uh, twenty-four thousand. Again, as we sit <laughs> in my four hundred square foot apartment, I don't understand what that means in real words, <laughs> in real terms. I don't think I've ever been in a house that big. Neither, wait, <laughs> I think I've been something close to that, but that's about it. That sounds that was like for- the equivalent of like a stadium. I maybe I have to see how fucking big a stadium is, but like on her on her property, she has like orchards too. Mm-hmm. Of like, pe- oh yeah, so a lot of people go there. They get married too. I went on a the website. They have wedding stuff there too, and it's like what do that. <laughs> that's also on a plantation. This is true. Oh, so true. Oh my god. So there are also forty-seven fireplaces, over ten thousand panes of glass, two thousand doors, fifty-two skylights, two basements. And three elevators in this house. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, there it goes. Look at how tall the tower is. There it goes. That's the old one. I just one. wanted to see a picture of what it looked like in the past. Oh, and as you can tell, uh, she spared no no calls. No calls were spared. Um, some of the stained glass windows were made by Tiffany. Oh, the Tiffany those company. are expensive. Yes, yes. Talking about million dollar window panes. Yes. She was not kidding when she when they she listen. They said the, the ghost told me build a house, but they didn't say it had to be a <laughs> a crappy house. Right, I can still be booed. Like I got a living here too. Might as well look nice. It's just so sad to think of her living in that big place all alone. I know, really terrible. I'm pretty sure she had like you know servants, probably servants, but still she didn't have like any boyfriend, no, no or family, nothing. Or yeah, no family. She just. Lived in a big old Victorian dress, but a gray with a black thing over her eyes all the time. It's terrible. It's so sad. It's terrible. Um. So inside this beast of a mansion, there are also stairways uh, that lead to nowhere. Yep. Right into the roof. Rooms you can open the doors to, but it just leads you to a brick wall. I like the one that's just a straight up drop. Yeah, yeah. There are trap doors and spy holes, of course, secret passageways in big rooms with smaller rooms inside of them. Okay, so what if, what if <laughs> oh my God. you could have a slumber party there? <laughs> yes. I don't think they let people sleep there because when uh, Shane Madey and Ryan Bergera went, mm. They only got to like be there at night. They didn't sleep there. Oh, I would. So I don't know if they let you sleep there, but I just think that would be super fun. That would be. I think because of how expensive all the like chandeliers and stuff are, they wouldn't trust people to stay there. I mean, it makes sense. Normally, like when they let you stay at a place, it's garbage. It's very true. Like all the old, you know. Yes. Yes. Sanitariums are (laughs) trashed. Sure, you can stay here. They're overcome with freaking wilderness. Why not? You can stay here all night if you want to. Fancy houses with Tiffany chandeliers and windows. You may not stay here. You no. can do your ghost hunt and get the hell out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. That characterization is me, not the <laughs> Westchester <laughs> Mystery House. <laughs> I'm sure they're very nice people. So, like I said, the, the spirits would, they, you know, they gave Sarah plans to, right, and that's to, she got those from her little seances. Yeah, yeah. Um, but she would also add in these little additions. Oh, 
like the get stair- fancy. so that she could um you know confuse the spirits that right, were right, that right. was talking her and you know they were out for vengeance so you know they and that's would, why it moved around like she would build a room and then destroy it mm-hmm. it's just a lot of construction going like, on oh ghost you thought this was a bathroom psych <laughs> brick wall in your face oh <laughs> even though ghosts can go through things but whatever yeah who cares uh, she really loved the number thirteen. Right, like, a lot of the things you see in her in the house. There, there's a lot of thirteen things. Right, going on. I've heard that during the tour they like encourage you to count the stuff. Yeah, like the stairs. There are a lot of stair of stairways or staircases. They have thirteen stairs. The ones that I've I've seen pictures of are like the long stairs, mm. which I find to be annoying. Like instead of it being a normal step distance, yeah. it's like a foot across or like two feet long and what is the point so you can have more that? Pe- more people walking up the stairs what's the point of a stairwell that's that long it's it just has to be it's like horizontal stairway oh goodness and i heard it's also like really tight corridors too yeah uh if you're counting there are also 13 bathrooms oh see yeah hmm now, why is she like, was her, her liking of 13 because she liked it? I think it's the same way why I like 13 because it's just a... The creepy number? I think that, and it's just a nice, it's a lucky number too sometimes. Okay. It's all to be, look, it's all to be lucky. Well, yeah, depending on what culture you're in. Absolutely. Isn't like four an unlucky number in like China? Somewhere. I actually meant to make a TikTok about that. I forgot all about that. God damn it. You anyway. <laughs> so in either 1906 or 1904, mm-hmm. uh, I got different sources, so... um. There was an earthquake in California. Oh, yeah. Which that was da- a big earthquake. Yeah, which damaged the house, causing the top three floors to collapse. And at the end of it, they weren't built. They weren't rebuilt. So that left the mansion with only four stories instead of that's seven the, stories. That's the big, that's the San yeah. Francisco one that yeah. like set San Francisco on fire. Yeah, that's that, that's that big. I guess it, wait, I must add up some pretty serious reverberations of it. Was that that one? Well, that's the one that sure. happened in 1906. Okay, then yes. Let's just see. Because yes. I was like, there was a big one in the early 1900s that like wrecked San Francisco. Like everything fell down. That's that one then. Okay, wow. And what city is this one in? Uh, I'm going to say San Jose, California. Okay. So San Francisco to San Jose. How far away is that? Come on, Google. Tell me the mileage. <laughs> That's 50 miles away. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it definitely. <laughs> That's a. Yeah. I mean, it was like I said, it's one of the worst California earthquakes. But to be able to knock down buildings 55 miles away, that's intense. I mean, remember that we had an earthquake like years and years ago that was in California, but we fell all the way in fucking Philadelphia. Wait, was, was that really that? No. no, it wasn't that one. But um, when was it? I was in school right i was in school then like culinary art school mm-hmm. and 2010 2011 i think it was there was an earthquake in california you felt it all the way in philadelphia and because everything was like shaking we we're like what the hell was that and then they ended class early and it was like oh it was an earthquake apparently uh it was on one of those fault lines that you know you can feel it but i was just really i, was like, I googled California earthquake felt on East Coast. Yeah. And it, uh, hmm. 
Maybe I got the wrong information. Maybe well, no, there was there was an earthquake that happened on the East Coast. Yeah, because it broke the the giant obelisk in Washington. It's I think it's called the Washington Monument. Oh, okay, it's the, <laughs> I know it's an obelisk. <laughs> obelisk. I listen. I know certain <laughs> words. Here I am using fifteenth grade words, but I can't remember the name <laughs> of the monument. Grade. Yes. Or as uh, I think my twenty five dollar words, but. I'm forgetting basic stuff, but yeah, it's the Washington Monument. It cracked. It's it's been cracked. It was some like yeah the mid aughts, like the 2012, 2013 around that time. I remember because I was on the phone with somebody, Hmm. and I was sitting in my bed, and the TV started shaking, and I I literally said to him on the phone, "Is this an earthquake?" And then apparently everyone started calling each other and the cell phone towers yeah. got overloaded and I couldn't talk to anybody for like 15 minutes. Yeah. And that was when I lived in Philadelphia. Mm. So that's why I was like, I remember that one. Is that the same one? I know. This happened like 2010, 2011. So huh. that's because that's when I was in culinary art school. So that's the only reason why I know. Oh, <laughs> I you were there it. too? Yeah. Well, we in Philadelphia at the same time. Probably. That's so fun. <laughs> we didn't know each other. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, back to the story. <laughs> I'm so sorry, y'all. We are off the rails tonight. Oh, goodness. The what mansion- happens when we start the podcast late? This is true. Late in the day, we're all wound up. <laughs> so the mansion was showed uh, shortly after Sarah's death, like a couple months after she died. Mm-hmm. The mansion was sold um, to John and Maine Brow- uh, Brown. Like in five months after her death. Mm-hmm. John opened the house to the public for tours. Oh, I thought you were going to tell me that they something bad happened to him. No. I was ready for it. <laughs> uh, even our boy, Harry Houdini, was there to take it, you know, check it out because he was on his spiritualism tour. Um, he was there to prove <clears throat> that <laughs> there were no ghosts. Basically. And that the mediums were bullshit. Basically. <laughs> he was, he, you know, he was there to expose spiritualism for the fraud it was. Anyway. He didn't know what to make of the house and like he walked away with like more questions than answer because it was just like a weird ass house to him. And he gave it the name, the Winchester Mystery House. Really? Yeah. 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 What did he, he call? He gave it that moniker. Wow. I never knew <laughs> so that. So then went with that. Harry Houdini. That's my boy. That is, that is my boy. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> uh, that was just a personal joke between us yeah. and hams that's pretty much it so <clears throat> over the years since since the mansion became an attraction visitors and staff have reported strange encounters yes like uh footsteps when no one's in there in the room uh strange voices doors banging strange lights doorknobs turning by themselves just you know plain creepy stuff you know the worst part about like a door banging like here small apartment yeah. the door closes i'm like yep there you go that's a ghost <laughs> you're in that place what door is banging what direction do i even go towards yep. you just let it go you oh gotta God, just, just let it yeah be. imagine the echo you just gotta let it go i imagine mm. being the security guard there would be rough yeah but you have to have one yeah true this is also a great great place for mediums or you know psychics mm-hmm. <clears throat> to come. <clears throat> Goodness gracious! Uh, of I'm course, losing. gotcha. Yeah, psychics to come and you know put their their two cents in. <laughs> Test it out. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they all 
experience Sarah Winchester. Oh, I'm sure they do. Everyone talks to Sarah. They. You know what my hope is? Mm. I hope she passed. Like, I hope she passed on to whatever. Oh, I got you. Afterlife that there is. And yeah. she really isn't there at her house. Just walking around sad. Yeah. A hundred years later. Goodness. But they have said that there are spirits there at the house. And one in particular is Sarah Winchester. Uh, I hope not. Uh, the Hall of Fires is a good spot to visit if you want to experience something paranormal. Um, okay. Named for all the fireplaces in it. Right. Okay. I have heard of that before. So a, a man was in the room helping with the uh, renovations or, or to restore it when he feels a tap on his shoulder. Turns around. No one's there. He's like, huh. Weird. Turns back around to go back to work. And he feels this like hand on on his back, just pushing him like very hard into his back. And then he's just like, mm, you know what? I think they need help in that other room. So I'm just going to go down the hall. Or... I mean, he did exactly <laughs> what the ghost wanted. The ghost was like, get out. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's an old worker there. Mm-hmm. His name is Clyde. And he's a ghost. Oh. And he hangs out in the basement. Right. That is where Ryan and Shane both did their little solo ghost thing. Ooh. In the basement. So, this mansion is open for tours this year. Oh, yay. Um, <clears throat> I'm saying yay like I could go to San Jose. <laughs> they have... It, it deviates a lot from when it was like just you know give me tours about it it like nowadays they have axe throwing at the at the oh, stables dope. listen axe throwing was awesome there there's a freaking harry houdini escape room theme thing going on there so i mean they got to make their money yeah like it's been like a, it's become a lot more than a spooky insanely built house it's just like it's actually like an attraction now for people to go to and if they want to do I just want to see the architecture. Yeah, I just want to. Oh, also, she had a thing for spider webs. Oh. And a lot of, if you go there and you look, a lot of the windows, mm-hmm. there's a lot of spider web designs. Oh, cool. As well. But. You have a kindred spirit. I know, right? Spiders, number 13. Harry Houdini came to my house. Not really, I wish, but. <laughs> <laughs> You can go there and pretend to be Sarah Winchester. There you go. Oh, oh, Harry, what are you talking about? Ghosts? No ghosts. Anyway, <laughs> that's what I got today. Well, that was like, <laughs> I like that one. Oh, goodness. I love the, I, I would love to visit. It's still on my list of places to go. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That and even, even going to California to visit Mr. Or is it California? Is it in Las Vegas? Which one? Uh, the mansion uh, not to mention a museum by oh you mean zach bagan's museum yeah that museum it's in vegas okay yeah i go to vegas one day go visit i guess just to see i want to see the dolls there and then look at his stupid stuff and not he has, his like face. the mirrors and stuff he has the dibbig box there too i thought he only got to wait i think he is i think it's there i'm pretty sure it's there i know that he got to open the divic box which you're not supposed Why to do. Why would you do? But I I thought the man who owned it 
keeps it secure like he buries it like hmm. he has not taken it out i'm not sure i think i i did hear that it was either that or something that he had there it might have been like an exhibit for a short amount of time yeah but i have to look into that anyway thank you guys for listening this week um if you want to follow us on socials you got britney cult podcast on tiktok and I am creeps for Brian. I've been trying to post more stuff on there, so yeah. check it out. I got more shit. I got what is it? What is it? What am I? What am I doing? Uh, cryptids or urban legends in your state? So yeah, that's I'm- cool. <laughs> and most of our socials, you can find the links to on our website, whenkillersgetcaught.com. Yes, yes. And it- if you listened this whole two hours, thank you so much. <laughs> we do appreciate it. <laughs>